The programme which follows is brought to you by Resonance 104.4 FM. You're listening to Very Loose Women. Listeners, you've just heard Club Integral and you're now listening to Very Loose Women on Resonance 104.4 FM. You've got me today, Emma, and also joined by... Leonor, hi. And we're really excited to have friend, historian and BBC New Generation thinker, Dr Sean Williams, into the studio. So hi, Sean. Hi there, hello. Thanks so much for joining us. So I know we've had, everyone's had a bit of a grey and sad day, so I thought maybe we could start off by having some mini celebrations. Often we start with a gripe, but... Today's not, banned. It's We're not, not a day gripes. for griping because there's just too many gripes. So has anyone got a mini celebration? I've got a very mini, mini celebration. Yeah, go on, Emma. Um, my niece can crawl. I just got sent a nice video of my niece crawling like a little angelic slug. So, yeah, I'm really happy All about that. All of your that. celebrations are about your niece. She's one to be celebrated. I stand by that. Um, like Sean, have you got a mini celebration? No, I haven't, actually. Oh, uh, my goodness. I was about <laughs> to turn the gas stove on in my living room, which is sort of quaint. But other than that, and horrifically domestic. But apart from that, none. That's a that's a mini celebration. No need to denigrate it. Yeah, you well, have I'm a still gasto. alive, so that's that's great. That, I mean, that is good. I'm yeah. alive too. I have a mini celebration. Is it that you're alive? Because I already know that one. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I was complaining about how cover letters, like, I just felt really inadequate. Yes. And how I'm awful at them. I do remember that. Well, I got, I'm like listed as a fine, like shortlisted for something. So apparently I'm not oh, as bad. Oh, thanks. Congrats. I'm Yay. not as bad as I thought I was. It feels like I'm a legitimate human being. That's great. I, I don't know what that feels like. Um, okay. So before we, we go into the kind of nitty gritty of things, um, Sean, can you tell us what song you, you chose? And maybe we'll listen to a bit of that. I, I thought think. we could listen to, um, I can't even remember what it's called now. It's a mandala pour. It's a pour, isn't it? Hair. Is it? Or my hair looks fierce, which is uh, it's just such a great song and a kind of send up of the whole celebrity hair um, sort of culture. I don't know much about clothes, but my hair looks fierce. I don't know much about clothes, but my hair looks fierce. I don't know much about clothes, but my hair looks fierce. I don't know much about clothes, but my hair looks fierce. We're going to be talking about the history of hair, hairdressing and wig making, but I thought we could maybe start by talking through our own personal worst ever haircuts. So Leo, do you want to start? What's your worst yeah, ever haircut? I do want to start. Actually, I've got two. Can I say two? Yes, you may. Okay, so first, it's like a very traumatic event. When I was when I was about six or seven, you may know the story, but my family had money and then lost it all when I was that age. And part of that uh, process was like not spending any money on haircuts because we were poor now and so my dad was like a cost saving technique put a bowl on my head and cut around the bowl classic bowl cut <laughs> and yeah. it was so traumatic and I remember like while he was doing that all of like my sisters were watching gladiators and I couldn't go and watch that because I had to stay and like be like have my hair cut by a really stressed dad so that was when I was like six or seven how big was the bowl like it was a it was a crap making bowl like for crap mix <laughs> Most French. We lost our money, but I still had our crepe bowl. Um, and, and then what was like, number two? Yeah, number two was like, okay, this was my own responsibility and had nothing to do with the trauma of my of my upbringing. But um, when I was about fourteen or fifteen, one of my sister's friends had really lovely, like short hair that was like strawberry blonde, and I was like, I want hair like that. That's what I'm going to do. So I went to the hairdresser down the bottom of the road, and I had like spiky. Orange hair by the end of it. My mum spent like it was like permanent dye. My mum spent like six months calling me carrot head, but it it just really it did not suit me very much. Sean, have you ever had a hair disaster? 
Um, yeah, I have, but I was the one that caused it. So <laughs> when I was a child, um, an all-too-trusting aunt let me play hairdresser with the kitchen scissors uh, on the condition that I didn't actually cut her hair, but I did, and I hacked off her fringe. <laughs> Um, and I feel this is the moral of the story here is clearly that academics should stick to theory and not practice. And that was a, a moral I learned early in my life. I think the moral of the story is don't give scissors to small children. Yeah. <laughs> my sister, actually, she cut a she does. She cuts my hair now and she's a wonderful hairdresser. But she cut a triangle in um, Philippa from the village's fringe. And she had like Philippa had really. I like the way you say it as if we know who that is. Like, oh, Philippa, you know, Philippa from the village. <laughs> she had like very straight hair. And um, she just like cut a little triangle right in the middle of her face. It was really funny. That sounds awful. And it was in all of her like school photos, this like triangle that my sister Was it like cut. a bullying technique? No, it was just like Ariane enjoys, I'm like, sorry, my sister <laughs> enjoys cutting hair. And she did it at a very young age. Um, I've had like so many bad hair haircuts or hair days. Like I've had a lot of undercuts, obviously like big in the squat scene, big in the kind of Bristol and London squat scene undercuts but like they never grow out or they look really ratty or like oh, I don't know they're just a punishment really um I've also had speaking of ratty I've had like a little rat tail before where I had like loads of short hair and just one like long fringy bit but it always just looked a bit like a rat tail oh I've just done so many bad things I basically almost got a perm once it looked horrible I cried when I left the hairdressers I've like damaged it with peroxide I like made myself like a my little pony which at the time I thought was cool but now I kind of regret anyway yeah I've had a lot of disasters speaking of hairdressers do we enjoy going to a hairdresser so I don't go to the hairdresser because my sister cuts my hair and she is an exceptional hairdresser now she's moved on from her triangle fringe days and like I don't even need to really say what I want she'll just do something that looks great on me at that time that I feel is very me because she knows me very well Sean how do you feel do you enjoy a visit to a hairdresser yeah, I do. But um, I think there are also a lot of people who are surprisingly large amounts of people out there who are afraid of going to the hairdresser. And, uh, and there are lots of sort of cultural representations over time that play into that. So Sweeney Todd being the most gruesome and obvious example. But, you know, we tend to talk about fear of the dentist um, a lot. And that's an accepted kind of anxiety or phobia, socially accepted uh, anxiety but but fear of the hairdresser we would tend to laugh at yet a surprisingly large number of people do have it well there's quite a few actually open in london anyway um a couple of there's open barbers and there's another one i think barbarella maybe they're kind of like queer orientated hairdressers trying to combat maybe people who've had bad experiences especially yeah. i've certainly had this going to a barber and asking for an undercut and then them saying we don't do women's hair things like that you know yeah. where this is a very gendered option yeah. i'm just thinking i actually really hate going to the hairdresser sorry everyone i just i often like by the end of it i'm in tears because i feel like they've they've not given me what i asked for i think i'm very trusting like when i got really short hair I mean, initially I went, you know, uh, Tony Guy does those five pound ones and I got a haircut that I didn't. Other really... hairdressers are available. Of course. But I like cut my hair like really short on one side and really long on the other. And I was like, oh, I should go and get this fixed. And so I paid the five pounds and they did a cut that I didn't like. So then I got it really short at this other place and she did a wonderful job and I was very trusting of her. I don't know. I never really blame it on the hairdressers, I think. My favorite hairdresser anecdote was once I was talking to a hairdresser about, you know, sometimes people come to you and they ask for something that's definitely not going to suit them or it sounds a bit weird and like, what do you do? And she told me that once when she was just starting out, she was maybe 17, a woman brought her a picture and said, like, I want, to, I want you to make me look like this. And it was a picture of a lion. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and she did it because she didn't know how to say no. Also, before we get in, into exactly what you do, in your line of work, as a hair historian, if that's accurate, do you feel a big pressure to have a perfectly coiffed do? 
A little bit. I mean, there are all sorts of pressures in my job, and one of them is that, to not have a wild and wacky kind of professorial hairstyle. Mm-hmm. Um, and another one, actually, is that every time I go in for a trim, my very friendly hairdresser asks me quite enthusiastically if I've finished my book yet, my History of the Hairdresser. And given that these things tend to take time and, and years rather than, you know, six-week cycles, mm-hmm. it's uh, it's quite pressurizing sometimes to, to be constantly asked about how far I've got and maybe... I haven't progressed much with a chapter in a six-week period and makes me feel bad before she's even started cutting my hair. But um, otherwise, uh, you know, it's all good fun. It's good to have someone motivating you. I I know, (laughs) and also someone who's interested. So I've got one reader there in my own hairdresser, so that's that's good. That's great. They'll probably want a free copy, though. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. Um, Okay, so the history of hair seems like quite an esoteric line of study. How did you actually get into it originally? Well, it was sort of by accident. So there's a German novel with a hairdresser in it from the 19th century. And originally, I was working on German literature in the 18th and early 19th centuries. So it's um, Hoffmann's Die Elixiere des Teufels. And I wanted to quote from this novel, but didn't have an edition to hand. So I put the quotation into Google Books, or what I thought was the quotation, and uh, as hits, all these hairdressing manuals from around the time came up that I'd never heard of. Um, and I realized that this character of Hoffman's was not just one from his brilliant imagination, but really a character of cultural history, sort of very much of its time. And Hoffman was sort of making fun of all these ideas of fashion and hairdressing in the period. So that kick-started the whole project, really. Um, which started as a literary one and has moved into being a sort of history of how the hairdresser has been presented and perceived since the late 18th century, right up until today, really. So I just, when I when I was thinking about hair, I just realised there's so many hair puns as well. So it must be really great for whenever you're writing a paper. Absolutely. Like it's just absolutely right for the punning. Absolutely. And if you want to uh, follow me on Twitter, for example, I have tried with a pun and my handle's at Wiggish History. Um, but, you know, we don't want to nitpick the details too much. I don't know, you could just go on with, with the puns. You really could. When you're combing through books for research. Oh, that's a good very one. Good, very good. Oh, we'll try and fit in some more before the end of the show. Um, so what period do you kind of research then and what kind of cultures are you looking at? Yeah, so, well, it's from the end of the 18th century. Um, that's when the term hairdresser was coined in English. And the hairdresser, as we know the profession today, emerged. So barber surgeons stop letting blood, pulling teeth. Um, the hairdresser is a sort of freelance individual that wasn't a member of guilds, sort of came about and was uh, sometimes represented as a fly-by-night character or a young entrepreneur rising up in society. Um, so from the late 18th century right through today, um, in a pan-European and American context, but as I've moved through uh, the period and my scope's widened a little a uh, bit more, so there is a great novel by a guy called Tendai Huthu, uh, The Hairdresser of Harare, which um, talks about Zimbabwean politics and identity politics and homosexuality in particular. And that's a really important novel that sort of comes in towards the end of, of my time period. So it really is an attempt to be a comparative project. So what kind of, why the fascination with hairs is like, what kind of do they symbolise? So it seems like they're kind of on the fringes of society at nice. one point. Well done. Thank you. Um, right, because they're kind of an outsider character. Can you talk a bit more about that and, and how maybe yeah. that's changed well, attitude? Um, Actually, I just finished a uh, radio program on that um, that you can listen to online that tries to trace it from the 18th century to around 1900. And then, of course, it goes on beyond then. And um, it's it's really about this shift. So in the beginning, the hairdresser was this 
subversive, freelancing individual, sort of one of the first types of servant who was brought into the house and paid on an hourly basis rather than a member of permanent staff, for example, um, and so could use those connections and um, that sort of freelancing um, yeah, position to uh, make use of contacts to uh, present themselves in the way they wanted to and sort of either be a high-end hairdresser or a local gossip or whatever. And as time moved on, the profession, of course, became more normalized and um, the guilds started to be developed fairly late in the 19th century. Um, and then in the 20th century, it, we had a whole load of different representations. Again, the kind of the rise of the idea of the camp hairdresser. Um, it became a more gendered um, professional, rather. It became what we know as a women's profession, whereas a lot of the hairdressers uh, throughout history were predominantly male. Um, and so the hairdresser is a character where ideas about society and about the modern individual um, have sort of been mapped onto onto this character. And that's why it's quite a good one to trace. It's, it's seen as a trivial character, a sort of history from below, but one that, um, is, that pops up in all kinds of uh, operas and novels and plays and films and, and such like. So what are your kind of favourite hairdresser representations in the arts then? One of my favourites is, is maybe a bit surprising. So Adam Sandler's "You Don't Mess with the Zohar." <laughs> I really, I really was not expecting that. No, yeah. yeah, but if you if you think about it, so a lot of uh, the beginning of the history of the hairdresser, as I write at least, or as, as I see that history, is about the rise in the self-made man, um, the idea of of the hairdresser as an artist, as a kind of frustrated individual who realises his true self through his hairdressing vocation, and that's precisely what. Adam Sandler's sort of parodying in this figure of Zohan, except Zohan is an Israeli terrorist and, um, uh, you know, uh, ends up in America. And it's also, it's also satire on the American dream, but told through the hairdresser. And so although it might come across as a rather trivial film, a lot of the ideas about the hairdresser in that film go back a long way, right back to the 18th century, actually. So it's, it's a great film to uh, sort of think about the history of the hairdresser with. I never thought that very little women would be endorsing uh, "Don't mess with us." <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, I study all kinds of high high culture, and uh, Adam Sandler is obviously right up there. <laughs> um, have you ever done any research into non-head hair hairdressing type things, or like I'm thinking a lot about eyebrow fashion because I feel like that's a big thing at the moment. Mm, yeah, yeah well, again, in the 18th century, towards the beginning of the 18th century, there were sort of satirical poems about women trapping uh, mice at night in order to use them for their hair, for their eyebrows in the morning because bushy eyebrows were in fashion. Um, so, yes, uh, eyebrows uh, form a part of the study as do uh, other parts of the body where you might find hair or hair pieces. Like a merkin. Yeah, but it, it generally it's a study of about the figure of the hairdresser rather than particular hairstyles or particular you know, fashions in, in hair growth. I was listening to and watching uh, the various media that you've put out recently um, and you were talking about a distinction between the kind of wig makers and the hairdressers. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so in the end of the 18th century, um, the wig maker was a guild member, uh, undertook um, 
hairdressing work as well, was a sort of upright member of society. And what happened with the hairdresser is as wigs went out of fashion, they reached a sort of tipping point um, and wigs went fell out of fashion or at least were made to look more natural or smaller hair pieces came into fashion rather than a full-blown wig. Um, the freelance hairdresser came along and the, the old order of wig makers and gilded barbers as well was out and the new kind of you know, sort of anything goes economy of the hairdresser, the wig maker, the barber, um, all sorts of um, characters who did very interchangeable type work um, but weren't regulated by a guild structure and could call themselves what they liked. So the wig maker really stands in for this this older um, craftsman-type idea with the end of the 18th century came this new self-styled hairdresser that, um, you know, shaped his own success in, in a way that um, was really up to him and his own creativity. So I know there's been a lot of hair scandals that you've spoken about as well. Um, can we maybe go into some of them and think of what are your favourite hair scandals? So I know recently you talked about, um, oh, I'm going to get you to say this, Leonore. François Hollande. Thank you. And and his hair-raising fee for his hairdresser. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, the, that was in the... Uh, it was earlier in the summer, wasn't it, that Francois Hollande uh, turned out to have a fully time, uh, full-time paid personal hairdresser on his staff who was paid as much as um, a French minister. And, uh, and this was really quite scandalous. Um, but if we look at this comparatively, each country has had their own hair scandal in recent years or hairdresser scandal. So... Cameron's honours list um, included MBEs for his and his wife's hairdressers. Um, Clinton, Bill Clinton's Hairgate was when Air Force One was held up by um, a Beverly Hills hairdresser coming onto the plane uh, to do Bill Clinton's hair. And it emerged that, you know, runways were said to be held up and, and, and so on. And then there was the French example. So there's often uh, political scandals attached to the hairdresser. And aside from that, the hairdresser has often, throughout history, been seen as a political figure. Uh, cartoons uh, titled The Political Barber, for example, where the barber shop is a source of news, uh, a source of gossip. And uh, no less a political leader than Napoleon felt threatened by the very rise of the hairdresser in um, 19th century culture. So the hairdresser has also been a political character in their own right that's been seen as scandalous by certain leaders. Why do you think they're so valued then, the hairdressers? So, like, obviously, David, David Cameron giving, you know, his barber and his wife's hairdressers MBEs. Like, why, why do you think they're so valued? Do, they, do you think they're just full of secrets? Exactly. If we think of the sorts of information we divulge to a hairdresser, it's a sort of curious set up in a way that in a very public space in front of a mirror um, looking at ourselves uh, or a reflection of ourselves we actually divulge very personal information in a very public space and um, and for that reason hairdressers gain our trust um, there's also a physical uh, proximity so we allow them to touch our heads we allow them to use quite dangerous implements around our ears and our throats mm-hmm. uh, out of which there has been much play and much um, many gruesome characters in the in the cultural imagination down through the centuries, and uh, so I think for that reason the hairdresser is a figure of trust in a way that isn't as professionalised or isn't as sort of isn't an institutional given like the doctor or the dentist who we sort of 
assume we will trust because of their professional standing, whereas to this day you don't need uh, qualifications to open up as a hairdresser. I have a question for both of you actually about this because when I go to the hairdresser, I tend to avoid talking to them. I don't know, like not on purpose. Like I'm generally very chatty. Like for example, if an electrician comes to my house, I usually chat to them a lot. I'm very chatty. But for some reason, when I'm getting my hair cut, I'm very silent. Are both of you, do both of you divulge secrets to your hairdressers? I did develop a really strong infatuation with one of my hairdressers. Interesting. She was just a queen. But yeah, I do find the conversation quite awkward. And also, because I'm a glasses wearer, I, when I take off my glasses, I find it more difficult to understand what people are saying. And I often just sit there like squinting and looking like quite distressed because I can't mm. see what they're doing to my hair. So I'm not really in a very good position to have a very free conversation. I don't know. What about you, Sean? Uh, obviously, you, div- you divulge your um, literary plans. Uh, absolutely. And I just love to talk. So I love to talk to my hairdressers. May I ask? I know it's not really the right day to ask about this, but Donald Trump gets a lot uh, of chat about his hairstyle. Well, can I just interject very briefly? Because you may, you may. I just wanted to say, and Leo, you, again, I'm going to have to ask you to pronounce a word for me because I've completely forgotten. Mm. But a few months ago, we had a guest on the show, your friend Selena, mm. and she read some... Yes, uh, I was hoping you'd bring this up. She yes. did an ecstasy um, Thank you. report. She Okay, so I don't know if you heard this episode, Sean. I'm not sure how much you listen to our show. but there's, Sean's a big fan of the show. Absolutely, I'm, we, a, I'm a committed fan. <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. Subscribe to the podcast and everything. <laughs> Acast.com forward slash very loose women. Anyway, Selena came on. She um, has done a PhD in ancient Babylonian history at Oxford. And um, one of the things she was looking at, or one of the things she's interested in as a sort of pastime is, is ecstasy, which is uh, looking at the entrails of dead animals to predict the future. And so she's got a friend who who was for some reason dissecting Armenian sheep um, to send her pictures of the guts of these sheep. And so she used these to use ancient Babylonian tablets to predict the future. And the question she asked the dead Armenian sheep was, um, will Trump win the presidency? Yeah, several months ago, she read she it. Said and she said Trump will definitely be president. And I guess so what I was... You yeah. heard it here first. That's true, you heard it here first. But I was just going to ask, because I feel like people do talk about Donald Trump's hair a lot. Are you into hair reading? And could you have made a prediction based on the hair of Trump and the hair of Clinton as to who would have won? I mean, I know it's not exactly your line of work, but I wonder if you thought about it at all. Um, well, I suppose Clinton's bob, if you look at Angela Merkel, who also has a bob and other sort of um, leading political women around the world, um, didn't uh, Nicola Sturgeon ha- have one for a while? Um, I think uh, th- th- there was at least a, a great article in the, in the Guardian about this a while ago that, you know, if, if the political bob at the moment among women is anything to go by, Clinton should have won the presidency. Um, Donald Trump's hairstyle is a is a great talking point. Um, actually, among the political right, uh, there are numerous male iconic hairstyles. So Boris Johnson is the obvious UK equivalent. Um, so maybe the extent of my hair reading is to say that given his iconic, rather unique uh, headpiece slash uh, natural hair slash possible uh, hair transplant. Um, <laughs> You've been very generous with the yeah, natural hair it, slash. It's, a, um, it, it's, it's not surprising that he's right wing. So that's the extent of my hair reading. That is very interesting. Wow. Oh my gosh, like that Dutch guy, uh, Hurt Wilders as well, has a similarly quaffed yeah. bob. That's very they often They often stand out for their... Um, their hairstyles. Hassle time was another one. 
Um, uh, yeah, I'd never really thought about it, but you've brought up Gosh, a lot of great examples. Yeah. Um, so we've talked about a lot of um, modern day hair scandals. Um, do you have any historical favourite hairdressing scandals? Not, not a favourite hairdressing scandal. The uh, favourite hairdresser of Marie Antoinette, um, his autobiography was published after his death, but there isn't a shred of evidence to actually connect him with this autobiography. So the idea, I think, more was that in order to dish the gossip of on the on, on the Queen and the court, um, you, you used a ver- her very famous hairdresser as the namesake for for the book in order to make it sell. Um, so that wasn't so much a scandal, but it, it was a possible um, fraud um, or fraudulent kind of publication that I quite like. That's really interesting. Um, okay, and last question then. Do you have any favourite phrases for hair or hairstyles? Actually, I have one that I've been thinking about that I want to ask you about. I don't know if you know this. I've been watching a lot of Gilmore Girls, classic like early 2000s TV show, and also a lot of Buffy, and they often use the phrase wigging out. And I was just wondering, like, have you heard that? And do you know if it's related to the hairdressing profession or wig making profession? Yeah, um, I have heard it. Um, I have, on very limited occasions, used it myself. Uh, I haven't actually <laughs> traced its etymology, though, so I can't tell you that. That can uh, be another chapter in your book. Yeah, then, that, that can be another part of this ever-expanding uh, book that won't be finished by the time of my next haircut. But uh, there are great, great phrases attached to uh, the hairdressing profession. One, uh, going back to Hollande, that came up when... Um, when I was interviewed about that, was shampoo socialism, which is such a great uh, equivalent of limousine liberalism or uh, or champagne socialism. So shampoo socialism, I think, is a great concept. So uh, that. That, 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 is... that's my favourite at the moment. What does it mean? Everyone it's like being a champagne. Shampoo. Yeah, but not everyone pays, what is it, 10,000 euros oh, yeah. a month yeah, for exactly. their... Just the, 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 de- the decadence of having your own personal oh, hairdresser, see, sort of uh, obsessive attention to your own look and, mm. and, and looking pristine and everything, despite mm. your sort of uh, down-to-earth socialist um, uh, convictions. Yeah, I see. Leah, do you have any favourite um, hair-related terms? I've always been quite partial to the word barnet. I've never heard that. Oh. And, like, every time I, I see a train going to high barnet, it makes me think of um, Amy Winehouse. Oh, that's she's got a yeah. high barnet. I don't. I'm sorry. You have no I, favourite I mean, hair terms? My mum used to be really fixated on the idea of me having a, a Louise Brooks bob. Mm. Um, so I've always remembered that word, bob. I also like to actually maybe, I don't know, maybe like four years ago when there was a kind of mullet seemed to be making a bit of a comeback. A and my friend used to call him a fashion moulet because it was like kind of, you know, well, it's kind of fancy. It's a fancy version of a mullet. Yeah. So yeah, like a fashion moulet like as well. Yeah. Oh, wow. So Sean, thank you so much for joining us. I think that's all we've got time for. Thank you um, very much. If our listeners want to find out more about your work, where can they go? Where can they look? Well, on my homepage, there are some links to uh, the Radio 3 programme, an episode of the essay on the rise and fall of the hairdresser um, and a clip on the Alain scandal um, with Newsday. Um, but I can can tweet those out to you and uh, hopefully they might interest some of your listeners. That's um, love We'll it. retweet at VLW Radio. And finally, could you um, introduce the last hair-related song for us to end on? Actually, before we go, listeners, can we just say thank you so much for listening? Um, up next, we have Global Globules with Bacon Face. To hear more from us, follow at VLW Radio and search Very Loose Women on any podcast platform to find our podcast. Um, so, Sean, yeah, could you introduce the, the last song for us and we'll say goodbye. Well, I'd love to say goodbye with Morrissey's Hairdresser on Fire. Um, And in this song, the hairdresser snips and styles in the home of the free, 
But the hairdresser, of course, isn't only a subversive character. Um, intention with that is also their commitment to conventional fashion or trying to project uh, different social identities onto us um, and being slaves to fashion norms. So Morrissey says, you are oppressed, but you're remarkably dressed. And I just really love this song because it, it sums up that tension the hairdresser that I tried to bring out of my research. Thank you so much. That's a great choice. Yeah, thank, thank you. Thank you so much, John. Thank you. Good night. Resonance is a not-for-profit broadcast platform and relies on public support. If you like what you've heard, make a secure donation at resonancefm.com.